Now, as, as we look at Luke chapter 10, we're going to be answering five questions. So if you go ahead and uh, get out your Bible, you can meet in Luke chapter 10. Now, as we, as we get ready to get into the book of Luke, uh, I want to first just kind of give you an update on where we're at in regards to our building process. So, yeah, well, don't clap yet, right? We don't know, we don't know what's going to happen. What if I'm like, hey guys, uh, a lot of roof leaks. Well, actually that did happen, but it's okay. Uh, didn't slow down the process at all. Um, all right, so this past Friday, we got an electrical inspection. We passed, yes, Jack is, Jack is excited, okay. Um, this Tuesday, Lord willing, we're hoping to get a final inspection. If we get the final inspection that we can pass, yep, this is where the, the clapping becomes a little bit grayer, but we'll, we'll give you something to clap about here in a second, Micah. Uh, okay, and then uh, this Tuesday, Lord willing, we'll get a final inspection. If we pass that, then we'll be able to apply for a certific certificate of occupancy. If we get the certificate of occupancy, this, nope, this is, this is what we're hoping happens, all right? You guys, it is going to be a miracle if I also get to preach a sermon this morning, okay? Um, so January 28th, we're hoping, Lord willing, is our last day at the rec center, okay? January 28th, all right? So we're talking next, yeah, next, next Sunday, yeah, yeah, okay? Um, now, this is, all, this is all in pencil, right? But then... The Thursday after January 28th, or no, the Wednesday after uh, January 28th, the 31st, we're going to do what we're calling OCB Open House, Oaks Church Building Open House, where we're going to invite everybody, we're going to pray together, we're going to worship together, we're going to spend a little bit of time in God's Word, and then we're going to talk about all the new fun stuff that we need to prepare for as we plan to welcome everybody into the building that following Sunday, our first day at the OCB, February 4th. Micah, yeah, there we go. Um, so, so that is, that's the plan. Now I'll say, who knows what will happen Tuesday, but that's at least what we're looking toward. Um, I also, there are so many people to thank, but obviously, uh, Jimmy Funches, I mean, has just gone over and above through this whole process. Yep. So he's currently in the back of the room holding the door right now. Uh, but just so thankful for Jimmy. I mean, he has been wearing both the hat of pastor and general contractor ever since we bought the building, and he's absolutely crushing it. So, uh, so thankful for him and just our whole church family through this whole process. Uh, so, hopefully, we'll uh, we'll be able to park some U-Haul trucks outside of the building next week, and we'll pack all this stuff up, put it in U-Hauls, drive it down, uh, eat some pizza together, and then officially be in our new church home. So, um, looking forward to that. Okay, now. Bill, how are you feeling about this mic versus this mic at this point? Okay, this one right here, great. All right, so you've probably undoubtedly heard the phrase, all you need is love. In 1967, the Beatles released the, the hit song, All You Need Is Love. And immediately that song struck a chord with the masses. You, you know, as well as I do, that often musicians have a way of becoming cultural commentators. Uh, they, they speak into something that immediately becomes something that the rest of our society says, yes, that's, that's something that I would agree with. It becomes a song that people listen to. And that has taken on various meanings throughout the years. I mean, there have been different organizations or movements that have adopted that phrase, all we need is love. And uh, some of those we would certainly reject. And at the same time, we understand that sociologically, people feel this lack of love 
And the, the sentiment behind the phrase, all you need is love, resonates with them. Now, if that's the case, then why do we live in a world in which we flip on the news and see that war exists, that peace is hard to find? Why is it that racism and prejudice often divide people? Why is it that people created in the image of God often see themselves as enemies of one another? Why is it that so many marriages end in divorce and are difficult? Why is it that verbal and physical abuse are so prevalent in our culture? If we have so many people saying all we need is love, then why does pride or jealousy or frustration or anger or judgmentalism characterize so many of our relationships? Where did we go wrong? If we all say we, we need love, that we should be marked by love. Well, you don't need to look any further than the first few pages of Scripture. What you see in Genesis 1 is that God created everything. That God created out of the overflow of the love of being a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit displaying an eternal love within the Trinity. Now this overflows into creation. God creates an entire universe and declares that it is good. He creates Adam and Eve as his image bearers and they have a relationship that is marked by love. Uh, every human, right, whenever Adam and Eve where the only two people on earth were characterized by love. Their relationship was one of peace, peace, trust, commitment, service, ultimately love. And yet what happened at the moment that Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, whenever they disregarded the commands of God, whenever they disobeyed the Lord? We know that sin entered in and it fractured every relationship. What happens, this relationship that was harmonious and full of love, immediately it becomes a relationship in which they are no longer unashamed in front of one another, but, but they begin to hide. They run from one another. Whenever Adam calls out to the Lord, he begins to blame shift and says, it was the woman that you gave me that caused sin to enter into the world. Instead of taking ownership, there was now conflict between them. Uh, the, the cycle continues. Every person born after Adam and Eve, instead of having a heart full of love for the Lord and love for one another, they're marked by sin. Cain and Abel, their first two sons that are born, are marked by jealousy. Cain becomes jealous of Abel's sacrifice, ends up taking the life of his own brother. Now, we see that once sin entered in, there was this lack of love, and this lack of the presence of love was due to the presence of sin in the world. But Jesus shows us a better way. We could look through the pages of Scripture and recognize the different historical figures that show these lacks of love, whether it's jealousy or competition or backbiting or anger or frustration. And yet we recognize that Scripture is not only a window into God's story and God's character and God's mercy and God's compassion. God's Word is not only a window, but it's also a mirror into our own soul. And we find ourselves exhibiting the same kind of behaviors as so many figures throughout Scripture, that we become jealous, that we become angry, that we become frustrated, that we lack peace in our relationship with one another. And what Jesus will say in Luke 10 is that there is a better way, and that is to love thy neighbor, to love your neighbor and to be loved by your neighbor because you are ultimately loved by God, which is exactly what we will be talking about this morning in Luke 10, 25 through 37. Love your neighbor as God has loved you. 
As we look at Luke chapter 10, continuing where we picked up and left off last week, we will be in Luke 10, a very famous story that people know. It's the Good Samaritan. We're going to see how this passage reveals that we love our neighbor as we recognize that we have been loved by God and just what that love should look like as it is displayed to one another. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, God's word says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for the love that you have shown us. Uh, Lord, during this time, would you convict us? Lord, would you lead us to repentance in ways that we find it hard to love others? because we're uh, either thinking of ourselves more or because we just don't want to love. Lord, I pray that your love would compel us to love others. Lord, I pray that you would reveal who to love and how to love them. And may even this time in your word be a time in which the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, draws us closer to you. We pray all of that in Christ's name, amen. Now, as we look at this passage, much like we saw last week, as Jesus was teaching, a lawyer stood up. Now, a lawyer in this time period is someone who would have been an expert in the Jewish law. So think this guy is like a theological scholar. And he stands up and asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, admittedly, this is an interesting question because an inheritance is not something that you earn, but something that is given to you after someone else passes. So he's saying, hey, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Like, what, what can I do to accomplish this? Well, either way, Jesus answers his question uh, by asking another question. And he says, well, what does the law say? How do you interpret it? And then this man responds by quoting both from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, 18, saying, you shall love the Lord with all of your being, right? Your, your whole soul, your heart, your strength, and your mind. But not only that, you shall also love your neighbor. And Jesus says, you're correct. Do this and you will live. Now, what we discover is that doesn't really get this guy off the hook, because he knows that he doesn't love the Lord with all of his being. He knows that people are often hard to love. And so he's going to try to ask another question to Jesus that will somewhat sidestep the weight of the law that has just been laid upon him whenever Jesus says, you're right. If, if you really want to understand what eternal life is, if you, if you really want to be completely righteous, you have to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. 
but no one is fully righteous. No one can do that, which is why we need Christ as our substitute, which is why we need to come to him. But this man, still trying to justify himself, is going to ask, well, who is my neighbor? This morning, we're going to talk about five questions that come from this passage. And I invite you to write these down. I invite you to use these questions in your devotional time with the Lord this week and maybe answer some of them during communion today. The first question that will arise from this passage is, who is your neighbor? That's what the lawyer wants to know. Who is my neighbor? Now, as as Jesus affirms the lawyer's answer to this question, I have no doubt that this guy who is a scholar of the law probably felt kind of proud of himself. Like, hey, you know, Jesus asked a question, I answered, and he said that I was right. But then the fear kind of sets in because he knows, well, people are hard to love, and I don't love everybody in the way that maybe I should. So he asks the question, who is my neighbor? The lawyer asked this question because he wanted to make the answer to this question, the, the heart that loves other people, he wanted to kind of draw in the parameters a little bit so that it fit people who were like him, who were easy to love. He wanted this command to be possible, to be attainable by the sheer effort of man. And so he says, well, well who is my neighbor? And why does he ask this? Luke is going to tell us. He asks this question in an attempt to justify himself, to make himself blameless before other people and righteous before God. Now, before we move on, let me ask you this question. Are there questions that you ask of God and of God's word with the intention of justifying yourself to to relieve guilt, to make yourself appear blameless? Do you ask questions like, well, should I really give generously if... You know, I haven't started my, my career yet. Um, you know, if, if the Bible was written, you know, if these New Testament commands were written in the first century, should I really adhere to these commands about purity or, or are they outdated? Uh, you know, should I really come to a, a Sunday gathering every week if I can listen to worship music in the car and just listen to a sermon on YouTube or on a podcast? And anytime you ask those kinds of questions of God's word or of the Bible, what you're trying to do is justify yourself, justify your actions instead of just submitting to God's word. And so here he's trying to make himself blameless before God. He's trying to justify his own actions as verse 29 says. And so he asks the question, who is my neighbor? Our question should be, Lord, how do I honor you with my finances? How do I honor you? with my dating relationship and my purity? How do I honor you with the way that I worship? How do I honor you in every area of life? But oftentimes that was not the question the Pharisees were asking, which is why instead he asks, now who is my neighbor? He expected that the answer to Jesus's, or to the question that he asked Jesus would be, your neighbor is your relative, your friend, your fellow Jews, He had no idea that Jesus was going to go the direction that he did whenever he asked this question. It's likely because uh, the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, or love your neighbor, comes from Leviticus 19. And Leviticus 19 is the the teaching in which uh, Moses, inspired by the Lord, writes to the Israelites saying, whenever you glean from your fields, don't glean all the way to the edges, but leave some room so that your fellow Jews and those that live among you 
can glean from your field. And so some of the, of the scholars of that day read that and said, okay, see, look, this means that you only love your neighbor as those that are near you, as those that live among you, as the fellow Jews. You don't have to think about the Gentiles. You don't have to think about the pagan or the sojourner or foreigner among you. But that's to miss what, that's to miss what is written 15 verses later, which is this that God tells Israel to care for the sojourners and Gentiles in their midst in the exact same way. Now, even with those verses being written in Leviticus 19, some of the scholars of that day would say, well, this is only pertaining to those who came and became proselytes. They were maybe Gentile people who then converted to Judaism and took on all the Jewish practices. And those were the people that you were to care for, but surely not everyone. Uh, Even a Jewish book of wisdom called the Sirach says that you shouldn't care for a sinner in your midst. But looking at the life of Jesus as a Jew who lived under the law of righteousness, we see that he indeed came to help sinners, that we are to help anyone and everyone in our midst. But the lawyer wouldn't have had that point of view. And so he asks the question, who is my neighbor? And it's the question that we'll be asking and answering this morning. Now, if you've got something to write with, I I want you to answer that question. Who is your neighbor? Uh, I want you to maybe think of the first five names that come to mind and to say, okay, these people are my neighbors. I'm going to help you a little bit as we walk through this. The word neighbor is an old English compound word that literally means the people that live near you. So the word ne means near and ber means to dwell. And so your neighbor is someone that you live near. But with modern technology, we know that that's not just speaking of a geographical location. That could be people that you interact with on a regular basis. It can be someone that you interact with on Zoom calls or parents that live states away. However, you would consider someone a neighbor. This is someone that you have a relationship with, someone that is near you. Consider the concentric circles of neighbors that you have. This can be your spouse, your children, siblings, parents, roommates, coworkers, church members, the literal neighbors that you have that live in your apartment complex or your neighborhood. This can be your classmates. This can be people that you know from the coffee shop or gym, wherever you frequent. Write down five names. These people are your neighbors and you are called to love them. But often we don't love people. Often because our sinful hearts are selfish We don't see people as we ought to. Instead of loving people, we often treat them as something different. I want to just think of of some of these. And as your eyes fall on the list that you just wrote out, think about how you might view some of the people that you are called to love in a sinful light. First, we can see people as a symbol of status. So we think, I matter because this person knows me. Maybe we see people as a symbol of status, saying, I matter because I'm married. I matter because I have children. We we use people as just kind of a symbol of status in our lives. I matter because this group of people report to me and call me their boss. We sinfully view people as just a symbol of status. We can also view people as a threat to be minimized. Do you ever view your children as tiny little sleep stealers? right? They're just threatening your, your ability to have comfort and rest. Do you see a person's name pop up in your text notifications and immediately just kind of let out a sigh because you're like, man, every time this person contacts me, they need something. We view people as a threat 
to our convenience, to our plans, to our schedule, to our comfort. That's not how Jesus teaches us to view people. Do you ever view people as a source of your self-worth or a source of your significance? So you think, when this person is happy with me, man, it's a good day. When this person is happy with me, the birds are singing, everything is right in the world. Whenever you view people sinfully as a source of your self-worth or your significance, then your day is either good or bad based upon the approval of this group of people or this person. And that places an unfair weight upon people that they were not designed to have. Even if it's somebody that you love, if that's how you treat your spouse, you are asking them, you're demanding of them something that only God was intended to provide. Maybe you view them as a competitor to be conquered. Is there anybody like that in your life? Maybe you compare yourself to your coworkers, to fellow classmates, to your siblings, even people that you went to high school with that you see on social media, and you find yourself viewing them as a competitor to be conquered. And sometimes you get kind of puffed up as you're scrolling through Instagram and you're like, man, like I seem so much more put together than they do. Or maybe sometimes you get discouraged and you're like, how did they get that job? Like, not, I, could, I should be there. You view people as a competitor to be conquered instead of a person to be loved. We sinfully, often, instead of loving people, we view them as an object to be exploited. Maybe you're a manager and, and you view people that work for you just kind of as cogs in a machine for your personal success. You're like, yep, as long as people do what I, what I want them to do, that's, that's all that, that, that I need. Some other ways that you can view people as an object to be exploited is even in parenting, right? So you want your kids to behave in public because you see them as kind of these little trophies that run around that prove how great of a parent you are. But they're not objects to be exploited for your gain so that people will be impressed by you. They're, these are people that God has given you to lead and to love. And perhaps the, the most obvious application, the way that we view people as objects to be exploited is in lust. Viewing, viewing someone's image or their body for your personal gratification. People are not objects to be exploited. They're people to be loved. Some people in our sinful hearts are viewed as a burden to be endured. Not a person to be loved. Like, oh man. It's taxing to be around those people. And sometimes we give ourselves a pass and just say, well, this person's toxic, so now I, I have a right to just not be around them anymore. They're not a burden to be endured. They're a person to be loved. And finally, a commodity to be consumed, right? So, so you just view somebody as like, I, I need this service or I need this good. You're the person that provides it. Right, so, so you look, you know, maybe you're checking out at the grocery store and the person that is actually ringing up your groceries might as well just be like self-service checkout because they're, you're just viewing them as a commodity to be, to be consumed, but not as a person to be loved. Right, so as, as we see this, we recognize, hey, we wanna maybe throw stones at this lawyer for trying to minimize the group of people that he has to love. And we, have, we recognize as we look in the mirror, there are a lot of ways that even the people we just wrote down on our list, those people that we desire, desire to love, we have distorted views of the way that we love them, the way that we view them. Each of these rise out of a desire for self-service, 
not a desire for sacrifice, and ultimately not a desire to love them as Christ has loved us. So who is our neighbor? Well, the question that we must ask is, who is in need? How can we meet that need? Question two, who is in need? Jesus knows that by telling a story, he can bypass some of the defenses that this man would naturally put up. So he creates a fictional character, a fictional character that will become an object lesson in loving your neighbor. Uh, this man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. You see that right there in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, here's, here's what we know, that whenever Jesus says this man was going down from, Jer- from Jerusalem to Jericho, this is, this is literal. This was uh, an elevation change of about 3,600 feet. So this was a treacherous journey up to the place of worship in Jerusalem. It's also a really treacherous journey down. It's about a 17-mile road with a 3,600-foot elevation difference. Now, to make matters worse, there were also caves that lined this path, and oftentimes robbers would hide in this cave. So if you were walking this path, you would have been constantly looking over your shoulder, you would have been on high alert, and what we find is that the man in Jesus's story encounters what would be everyone's worst nightmare. As he's walking on this road alone, robbers come out, they take everything he has, they beat him, they strip him, and they leave him half dead. Now, remember, we know how this story goes. And I would imagine if you were one of the original hearers of the Good Samaritan, whenever Jesus starts to speak verse 31, you're thinking, ah, this is the resolution to the story. Right? Because how does verse 31 begin? Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. Well, remember, Jesus is talking to Jewish people, probably some priests, some scholars in the midst. Here was this man who was beaten and left for dead. Now, how do you expect it to go? And then this priest, this righteous man comes by. He has compassion upon him. He he kneels down. He binds up his wounds. He takes him back to Jerusalem where he can care for him among the other people that are worshiping in the temple. And everything is good and right in the world. But that's not what happened. That's not how the story goes. What do we see? That the priest is walking down the road. He he sees a man-shaped figure in the distance. And as he grows closer to this man, he sees that there's blood spattered in the dust. His clothes were ripped and torn. Was the man unconscious or groaning? We don't know. What we do know is that the priest didn't even get close enough to observe this man's needs. What does it say? It's right there in the text. It's very intentional. It says that he walks on the other side. Now, that was likely strategic. He's just avoiding this man that could be potentially his neighbor. Why? Well, Well, because if this man is dead, if he's a corpse and you've got this priest who's walking by, if he was to get close to this man who's dead, if he's to touch a corpse, that makes him ceremonially unclean. And I mean, he's a priest, right? He's got obligations to keep. He's got responsibilities to execute. He can't can't render himself ceremonially unclean, so he's just going to keep his distance. Not only that, we know that Leviticus 19.16 says that you should not stand idly by while your neighbor is in trouble. But this man, most likely having the same interpretation of the Jewish book of law called the Sirach, would have said, my neighbor is only my fellow Jew, and as long as I'm staying over here, I'm keeping my distance, it's really hard to tell if he was wearing Jewish garb or not. I mean, I don't know if he was one of mine, and so ignorance is bliss. He stays on the other side of the road and just keeps walking. Now, let me make a quick application here. 
If you are to love your neighbor, you can't avoid your neighbor. If you are to love your neighbor, you must get close to your neighbor. You must know your neighbor's needs if you are to love your neighbor. And in the same way that we study a passage of scripture to exegete it, to know how to understand it, we should study the needs of our neighbors. We should study the needs in our culture. I don't think it's any secret that there are some broad strokes of hurt in the impact of sin in our culture. And I think a few of them are these. Loneliness, confusion, a misplaced identity, and suffering. I mean, we could go on, right? But if, but if you were just to kind of take a, a broad pull of what people experience in our culture that are hurting, maybe even in this room, it's loneliness, it's confusion, searching for truth, it's misplaced identity, you know, I, I am my relationship status, I am my educational accomplishments, I am the amount of money that I have in the bank, I am the title that I hold at work, or it's just suffering because we live in a broken world and life is hard. And yet to know those needs is to also have the opportunity to meet them. That we as the church can say to the lonely, you can know God as father and you can welcome, be welcomed into a community that is the church called the family of faith. To those that are confused, we can say this is a place in which you are welcome to seek the truth and find it in Jesus who is the way, the truth and the life. It is to say to all of those who are finding their identity in places that can't satisfy, that you can discover your true worth in what Christ paid for you upon the cross. It is to say to those that are suffering that you can find comfort in the providence of God and look to the hope of heaven in which every tear will be wiped away by the nail-scarred hands of Christ. You see, you have everything you need to show your neighbor that God meets their needs. I remember it was a couple years back, um, you know, something that Abby and I do often, uh, maybe once or twice a year, is we host a block party in our front yard. So I get out the grill, we provide hamburgers and hot dogs, we invite all of our neighbors, and we say, hey, if you want to bring a side, you can, but we're just going to have a, a time to meet people, uh, where people can meet one another. We've been doing this for years. Um, on multiple occasions, somebody has asked me if I'm running for office, and I'm like, no, we just, we just... <laughs> You know, wanted to hang out with, with you and get to know you. So, uh, so we, we invite people over. We invite people into uh, our front yard. And it's cool how people who have, like, lived on the same street together for 10 years, like, meet one another in, in our front yard. And we get to be a part of facilitating that. But it's also cool to see what God has done with that over the years. Um, we had uh, a block party, you know, three years ago. And then I remember a couple months later, there was a woman that I recognized who had been standing in our front yard a few months earlier and she, she came knocking on our door, there was just tears streaming down her face. And I opened the door and I said her name um, and she said, can I come in? And she was just frazzled and I said, absolutely. So she, so she walked in and Abby was there and I said, Abby, um, you know, can you come in here, in, in here? And they sat on the couch together and Abby began to listen to her and pray for her and everything that was going on. And during the course of that conversation, uh, the woman explained, um, I, was, I was at this house over here and we knew where she lived. And she said, I was just sexually assaulted and I ran out as uh, soon as I can. And whenever I, whenever I got to the sidewalk, I didn't know where to go, but I knew that I could come here. And I knew that there were people here who would 
who would care for me until my ride could come. And, uh, and so we prayed for her, we cared for her, we still, we still keep up with her. Um, you know, it was maybe, uh, you know, a year ago that I, I drove her oldest son to school. And I mean, I've known him since he was just a little guy at this point. And, and the Lord is continuing to reveal himself to her in, in different ways. And we're, we're watching what the Lord does. But, but I want you to see how just understanding the needs of our culture and, and getting to know somebody's name and creating opportunity in the margins to, to love people who might feel unloved, people who are hurting in our culture, creates an opportunity for them to experience the love of God. And I sh I'm sure that you have those kind of stories in your life as well. But if we are to bring any aid with the gospel to people, we most certainly cannot be those that avoid them like the priest does in this story. The story continues. The priest fades into the distance, as does what seems like the hope of this man's survival who's beaten and left for dead. Next, a Levite comes upon the scene of this crime. First a priest, then a Levite. These, these guys are a representation of the religious insiders of the day. They are the who's who of people when it came to religious life. Priests led the worship gathering. They assisted in the temple sacrifices. And then it's the Levites who were kind of like the associate pastors and worship leaders of that day, right? So they were the custodians in the temple. They were the musicians that led all of the songs. Helping other people was their entire job. And yet again, what is gonna happen in verse 32? Likewise, a Levite comes along. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. He doesn't stop. To add insult to injury, because this man who was beaten was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, we can safely assume that he was in the temple worshiping before he began this journey. So think about that for a moment. The Levite, who here turns a blind eye to his suffering, was most likely in this fictional story at the temple at the same time as this man. Maybe he even would have recognized him. The Levite and the priest lived off the sacrifices that men like these would have given in the temple. They, they had their welfare, their being, off of the temple tax that was funded by people like this who worshiped in the temple. And yet, whenever he sees this man out of the public eye, he just passes right on by. He doesn't stop to help. I think that causes us to ask, are we, are we motivated by a desire to only love other people whenever it's observed by other people? Are, are we glad to receive one another love, but become reluctant to show it to others whenever they're in need? The priest passes by, the Levite passes by, and then there's a third person in the story. Now, a third person comes upon the wounded man, and you should know that in Jewish life during this time period, there was kind of a threefold division in the sociological hierarchy, all right? So the phrase was common the priests, the Levites, and all the people, all right? Uh, it was something that was used in everyday conversation. It was used in the way that they talked about uh, how laws and everyday life related to different people. And so they would just say, the priest, the Levites, and all the people. So if you're somebody who's in the crowd while Jesus is telling this story, you're seeing the pattern. You're like, okay, a priest, a Levite, and then it's just gonna be like, a, like a, just a normal Jewish lay person is gonna walk by. What nobody expected is that Jesus was going to make the third character in this story a Samaritan. Because Samaritans were looked down upon in this culture. Samaritans were poorly viewed 
by the Pharisees and, and by most Jewish people. The tension that existed between a Jew and a Samaritan had deep historic roots. You see, Samaria was the region that was right north of Jerusalem. Uh, the, the area of Samaria and the Samaritans were Jewish people who, whenever Assyria conquered northern Israel, then intermarried with the Assyrians that conquered them. And they began to mix Judaism with the religious practices of the Assyrians. They kind of started to mix these pagan practices. They said, you know, we're going to create our own version of the first five books of the Bible. Instead of viewing the temple in Jerusalem as the place to worship, they said, we're going to worship on Mount Gerizim. And so there were all of these things that really created tension between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, to add to that, the Jewish historian Josephus said that Samaritans were actually pro-Rome during this time, and they allowed a temple to be built to Caesar in their region. And so the, the hatred for one another seemed to go both ways in, in this time period between Jews and Samaritans. Needless to say, Samaritans were never heroes in Jewish stories. Uh, we see even in Luke 9, before Jesus tells this parable, Jesus goes into a Samaritan village, and they reject him. And James and John, who were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, turn to Jesus, and they say, hey, can't you just kind of send down fire from heaven and just scorch all these people? And obviously Jesus doesn't do it, and he says no. But it just kind of gives you an idea of how even the disciples who walked with Jesus would have looked down upon Samaritan people. So whenever Jesus says, but a Samaritan, I would imagine that you could have heard a pin drop. And that's exactly what Jesus intended. He describes this Samaritan that journeys along in verse 33. He came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. What do we see here? That the Samaritan's compassion for this man compels him to go to this guy that was hurting. Then he begins to bind up his wounds. He pours oil and wine. Oil would have softened the scabs from the wound. Wine, the alcohol in it would have been, began to disinfect the wound that he had. And this isn't a sanitary task. I mean, imagine this. He's now sitting in the dirt. He is sweating under the hot sun. He's getting the blood of this beaten man on his hands and on his clothes. We also can't forget that stopping here to help someone as Someone himself who would have been traveling alone could have also put himself in danger, right? It, what if the robbers were still around that did this to this man? If anything, wouldn't you want to run if you saw somebody in need? But the Samaritan's love for this man overcame the fears that he might have had. Then he, in verse 35, takes out two denarii whenever they get to the inn. He sets the, the man on his animal, takes him to the inn, and this is uh, about two days' wages. A denarius was a day's wage. And so this would have been enough for uh, the man who was wounded to be taken care of for about two weeks in this inn, to be fed, to, to receive everything that he needed. And then not only that, the Samaritan says, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. He's saying, put everything that is needed for this man on my tab. I promise that whenever I come back, I'll settle up. I'll completely take care of him well, we see that this isn't just extremely generous. This is also a way to 
prevent the man who was wounded from becoming a slave. Remember, he had been completely robbed. Everything he had was taken from him. And in this time, if you couldn't pay a debt that you owed, then by law, you had to become a slave of whoever you owed that debt to. And so here he is, he is taking care of this man. He is loving this man in the utmost. The Samaritan sees the need, he meets the need. And now Jesus is gonna put the spotlight back on the lawyer. Look at question three. Who should you be a good neighbor to? Look at the way that Jesus asks this question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, upon finishing this story, there's no doubt that some people in the crowd would have been absolutely disgusted by this. Other people in the crowd would have been confused by the way that Jesus made this Samaritan the hero of the story. And do you see how Jesus turns the question? The lawyer originally asked, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus instead says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The way that Jesus asks this question is different than what the lawyer had originally said. Instead of just focusing on who meets the qualifications of being your neighbor, he's asking, how can you be a good neighbor to others? How can you be a good neighbor to those in need around you? The Samaritan in this story, he was less concerned about figuring out who met the qualifications of being his neighbor for them to be loved. And he was more concerned about simply being a good neighbor to anyone in need that he came in contact with. So verse 37, what would the lawyer say? I mean, he's undoubtedly in the midst of some priests and some Levites. How is he supposed to answer this question? Which of these guys proved to be a good neighbor to the man who was in need? And he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. And he, he, couldn't, he couldn't muster up the unction to say it's the, the Samaritan is the hero of the story. So he simply says, the one who showed him mercy. And in this, Jesus is making the point, don't try to pick and choose those who you show love to. Show love to all, show love to everyone. I mean, in Matthew 5, Jesus even says to love our enemies. So there, there are, are, are no restrictions to the way that we show this kind of love to others. And here, Jesus gives the golden rule, you go and do likewise. You go and love people in this way. So who are you to love? You're to love everyone that you come in contact with. Now, I wanna give you three Latin theological terms that undergird, that support this command to love everyone. First, it is the imago Dei. What does that mean, imago Dei? That people are created in the image of God. You should love everyone because everyone is created in the image of God and because God cares for them. Not only that, you should love everyone because of the Missio Day, There's a church that we love in our city that is called Missio Day, which means mission of God. The way that God is, is going to reveal his love, his character, his grace, his mercy, his salvation to people is partly through the way that you love them. So we love people as a part of God's Missio Day, his mission. Third is the word Coram Deo, the phrase Coram Deo which means in the presence of God. We love others because every interaction, every attitude, every action takes place in the presence of God, Coram Deo. And because of that, because we recognize that God is omnipresent and every interaction is an opportunity to glorify him, we make the most 
in our relationships by loving other people. So we love everyone. Now, I know that you hearing that can be like, wow, that's, that's a, a huge command, right? To love everyone. Uh, sometimes we can, we can become paralyzed by how pervasive a command like that is. And we're like, you know, I mean, what does this mean? Does this mean that I need to like look at my schedule this week and figure out where there are blocks in my time to volunteer for neighborhood cleanup and I need to start serving at you know, homeless shelters for six hours every Saturday? Like what, what's going on? Uh, first, let me say maybe. Like we, sh- we should tangibly serve other people. And at the same time, I think that you have plenty of opportunities to love people that are near you without even changing your schedule. You see, a a recent study was done that has shown the average person interacts with about 12 people a day. So you, on a daily basis, if you're among the average, interact with about 12 people a day. Most people personally know by name, you know who they are, you know what they do, you know how they spend their time. You have a relationship with 611 people. That's just kind of the average. So on a daily basis, you interact with 12 people. And right now, if you had to take a list and write down people's names that you know in different spheres of life, you would come up with a list of probably close to 611 people. Now, here's why that's significant. Because in this room, where there are probably about 250 people, I know that there would be some overlap. But that means that on a daily basis, if you were to not change a single thing about your schedule this week, collectively, we will come in contact with 3,000 people tomorrow. That's 3,000 opportunities from the people in this room to show the love of Christ to others. Think about that. That's, that's a huge number without even changing your schedule, but just simply changing your, your posture in every interaction. Think about the 611 people that you know. That means that if you do not meet another person this week, if you don't introduce yourself to someone, you already no 611 people, which means collectively in this room, we have 152,750 relationships in which the love of God can be expressed and shown. Think about that. I mean, whenever we think about reaching our city of 2 million people or, or reaching the world, that can feel like such a daunting task. But understand, you're gonna have 3,000 interactions with this room combined tomorrow. You right now, if you were to scroll through your phone, people that call you friend would probably be somewhere among the 152,000 number. That's a lot of people that can receive the love of Christ. So we wanna dream big, but we also recognize that we can start small by being intentional in each of these relationships. What if you asked this question in every interaction you had this week? How How can God be most glorified right here and how can the person that I'm interacting with be loved? What if, what if you asked yourself that question while you're sitting at, at your counter helping your child with their homework? That's your neighbor. What would happen if you begin to enter your staff meetings with that question? Because I'm here, how can God be more glorified? Because I'm here, how can the people in this room feel more loved? What about your accountability time at MC? What about whenever we walk into this room and you see somebody who looks like they're looking for a place to sit because this is their first time here? Every interaction is an opportunity to glorify God and to love others, which leads us to question four. How can I love? How did the good Samaritan love? We see that he went to where this man was. He stayed with him. 
He was moved with compassion for him. He noticed his wounds and he bound them up. He sacrificed for him. He doesn't just throw money at this man like he's a problem from a distance. No, he committed to his complete recovery. And that is how we love. Notice that the command to love your neighbor isn't just a negative command, don't mistreat your neighbor. No, it's a positive command, love your neighbor. Which is why in verse 37, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now, there's a really helpful short book written by a guy named Dave Ferguson where he uses the acronym BLESS to think through five broad categories in which you can love your neighbor. I like acronyms because they help you remember things. The B in the acronym BLESS is to begin with prayer. Do that this week. Just begin to ask God to give him, to give you his eyes as you look at other people. Uh, To think, Lord, who should I love and how do I love them? Begin with prayer to listen with intentional questions. We wanna know others, we wanna get to know them, we wanna know their names, we wanna know what they're thinking, what their fears are, what they're looking forward to. Uh, In this room, don't settle for talking about sports and the weather, go deeper so that you can love others. Third, we eat with people, we we share meals with people, We, we ask them out to coffee, we get to know people, we share a meal with the people in our missional community groups and make the most of that time. We're hospitable, we open up our homes for people. Fourth, serve someone. This could be babysitting for a family, taking a a meal to someone. Uh, This can be something as simple as showing up early to be a part of our setup team. Help us finish strong here at the rec center. How can you serve someone tangibly? Fifth and finally, share the gospel. Share the gospel with someone that doesn't know Jesus. Ask someone if they wanna read the book of John with you over the next couple months. Uh, What does it look like for you to even share the gospel to encourage a friend who's struggling with sin and remind them that Christ has forgiven their sin and they no longer have to walk in the bondage of it? What does it look like to remind your spouse of the love of Christ and how thankful you are for them to remind them of the gospel? What does it look like for you to come alongside a brother or sister in Christ and simply acknowledge their growth and say, I see Christ in you, to share, to encourage people with the gospel? You see, in, in Tim Keller's book, he also asks the question, how can we love people? Uh, in, in his book, Generous Justice, there is a, a, a fictional way that he says, what if there was a sequel to this story of the Good Samaritan? What, what if the Good Samaritan walking back on this same road saw two more people that were lying in the ditch and left for dead? What if this was a pattern that he continually saw over and over again? He would begin to ask the question, if this keeps happening, then what can we do to make this road safer? What can we do to prevent this from happening to people? And that's how systems of restoration and rehabilitation are made. We ask that question as a church. We say, man, marriage is hard. Even Christians struggle a lot with marriage. How can we help? That's why we have an equip class at 9 a.m. that is all about building a healthy marriage because healthy marriages don't just happen, right? There's not a perfect marriage in this room. And those looking to marriage want to learn more about it. Uh, We think about our city and man, we we, we are so excited to be moving into the Silverton neighborhood. But we also want to plant new churches and neighborhoods all throughout our city. We want to plant new churches throughout our nation and we want to send missionaries to reach the world because we know that's where people's lives are changed and restoration takes place. It's why we've said as a church, we're making positive steps to build a counseling center for our community because we see different patterns that take place in people's lives where they're left half dead and and beaten by sin. And we don't wanna stand idly by while that takes place. 
So as individuals, we, we wanna see needs and meet them with the gospel. As a church, we wanna see needs and meet them with the gospel. But the only way that that will truly happen is if we've experienced this love ourselves. Question five, have you experienced this love? As I said last week, our love for God and others must first come from receiving the love of God. Now, I have no doubt that the main point of Jesus sharing this parable is to teach this lawyer and the surrounding crowd who to love and how to love them. But whenever I read the story of the great Samaritan, I can't help but be reminded of an even greater savior. Let me ask, do you see yourself in this story? I do. I see myself in this story. Do you see yourself as the man who was beaten and left for dead by sin? Totally depraved, no ability to clean yourself up, a sinful heart rebellious toward God, left, no ability to clean yourself up. Religion comes by, moral law comes by, and you know that even if you kept it as as good as you could, it would not be enough to earn a righteous standing and a relationship with a holy God. But when we were helpless, Christ came for us. It was Christ who saw our wounds, knelt down and bound them up. It is he who washes us clean. It is he who pays the ultimate price of our redemption and recovery by sacrificing his own life on the cross to become the substitute for the penalty of sin and death. It is Christ who has shown that he has secured an eternal inheritance and that all of our debt is paid through his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. It is he who is now seated on his throne to promise all that is needed will be paid to secure not only your salvation, but the entire process of sanctification. Jesus teaches us about the good Samaritan to ultimately reveal to us that he is an even greater savior. And now we experience this love through Christ that we may show it to others. We experience the love of Christ, not only from Christ, but in his body, the church. And what we find is that by loving others, we also experience the love of Christ through one another. It is Christ who loves you through the love of fellow Christians around you. And by loving one another, it is the Lord's prayer that comes to pass, that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. A world that is marked by sin becomes a little more like that garden that God created for Adam and Eve to inhabit. The love that we all need is ultimately found in Christ. So we love our neighbor because Christ first loved us. Let's pray.